I am the host of the I'll Go First podcast. I'm also the founder and CEO of I'll Go First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. Okay, let's talk about climbing mountain peaks. This is amazing. Today we are joined with Amanda Burl. She is not only a veteran, she's also a very passionate brain injury advocate, and she's an endurance athlete. What's most amazing about her is that she's doing all of this while living with multiple brain injuries. It's amazing. Did I say that already? It's like, it's really cool. You're going to be so inspired by her story. Let's get started. Welcome to Algo First. I'm Jessica Minhas, and today I'm joined by a new friend, Amanda Burl. She is a journalist, a veteran, which is really cool. Today is Veterans Day, and she's also an athlete and a very impassioned advocate. It's been really special to get to know you because we've been talking a lot about how we both have brain injury stuff, so we can relate a lot to that. I wanted to bring you in today because Not only are you a veteran, but you are just doggedly determined to get to the bottom of healthcare for yourself, but also on behalf of a lot of others. I know that that's very meaningful for you. I wanted to start at the beginning because something that I loved that you said when we first had a chat was that you're not the typical veteran. When we think about veterans who are struggling with healthcare, that's actually not a part of your narrative in that it's visible. Right, right. And yeah, it's it's funny because I would say I am the typical veteran in some ways, but my outcome is atypical. And it is Veterans Day and you know, I'm proud of my service and thankful for everyone who has served. But the state of veterans affairs is dismal right now on the mental health side. A lot of people leave the military as I did with a physical injury, uh, a head injury. I was chronically post-concussive for several years and walked out the door with a bunch of mental diagnoses. And I really had to fight to overturn those and eventually get the help I needed. So I believe that leaving the military and getting a bunch of mental health diagnoses and the medications that go with it is very typical. But fighting as hard as I did to overturn those and eventually turn to the private sector as I did to get the help I needed and now know exactly what's wrong with me and move forward in life in a much better place, that is not typical. And that's why I speak out so much about post-concussive syndrome and brain injury, because I do believe, as you know, how it can affect your life. Yeah. (laughs) It's very easy, especially with women being over two times more likely to get a mental health diagnosis when they walk in the door of a doctor's office on the first visit. I do think it's a chronic problem. I hate that word chronic, by the way. Really? Why do you hate (laughs) it? I do because chronic, you know, having been in this sort of like limbo of the medical field for so long, I see a lot of times people settling for, oh, I have a chronic illness or I take all these medications. Oh, so you see it as like kind of you're settling in your your illness. 
Right. How, yeah. Tell me more about that. How, how, can you put some more words to that? Yes, absolutely. I believe that everything has an underlying cause. And especially talking about veterans, especially today, there should be more of a focus on therapy and finding underlying causes of issues rather than settling into I have a chronic illness. And I see that a lot. And that is something I've seen rampant in the veteran community. And that's why I speak out. I could be sitting right here today yeah. with my four mental health diagnoses and all the medications that came along with that. But instead, I know that I have a physical and neurological problem and I don't take medication. That's so interesting because the author, Susanna Callahan, just came out with a new book. Her first book was a New York Times bestseller called Brain on Fire. And her second one is called The Great Pretender. And it was so interesting because I went to her book release right before you and I got together. Mm -hmm. The Great Pretender is a lot about how do we um, diagnose psychiatric issues. And similarly, she was diagnosed with psychiatric issues when actually she had an underlying antibody mechanism. So talked a lot about these organic mechanisms that present as psychological, psychiatric disorders or illnesses when actually it's more of a organic body-based issue. Absolutely. I went years fighting uh, these diagnoses once, you know, I believed them at first because I didn't have any other explanation yeah, as like why to why you believe I couldn't find my words and why I couldn't see straight or walk in a straight line. These are classic brain injury <laughs> symptoms, but it took me having a really bad fall and smashing my head and busting my neck and oh my, my jaw and my eye. Wait, when was that? That was the, the second TBI. That was in 2014. So... I, I jumped ahead. That's my fault. And maybe that's a reflection of the fact that we both have brain stuff. And I didn't really set up contacts. So oh, right. sorry to everyone listening. <laughs> I like jumped right into my notes. I'm a little frazzled this morning. But let's actually take a step back and set the scene a little. You went to Boston University and you were in RTC. Mm -hmm. And then after completing graduation, you decided to become a naval officer. And I know that kind of the military runs in your family. Um, your dad was in the military as well. I went to college on the government's dime. So, hey, <laughs> I mean, I mean them for don't something. sell me short. <laughs> I took advantage of that deal. <laughs> Boston University is not. It costs a pretty penny. It's not a weekend job sort of <laughs> paying for university. Exactly. But yeah, then I was commissioned uh, the day after graduation and entered my service. So you served for five years altogether. Uh, six on active duty and then an additional uh Two as an active reservist and then several more as a, a more inactive, you know, just show up once in a while reservist. So it was actually quite a haul, like 10 years. When I look across the table to you and everyone listening, you'll see in the show notes and sort of all the links that we provide. Amanda is like stunning. And <laughs> it's really like she's sort of mesmerizing to <laughs> to to behold. You, you're actually biracial. Yes. Yeah. Your dad is the one that my dad is Scotch Irish and my mother's Vietnamese. So one in one of the articles you have done, you talked about how determined your father is, how he's like very macho and yes. how when you got injured for the first time, there was sort of like and I think maybe this is the nature of the military. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's just like a dogged you will get through this. Right. Yes, another appropriate topic for Veterans Day, but I, it's also a mentality I grew up with. To be fair, you know, my dad had been 
in the military during the Vietnam War era, and yeah. he was there. And my mother also grew up in Saigon. You know, she existed in Vietnam from 1949 to 1975. That's wild. Prime warriors. So I think uh, Grin and Barrett was instilled in me. But also, you know, when I first got hurt in 2003 while I was in the military, during my first deployment, I... I reported to my ship in November 2002 and we deployed right away. It had just come back from Afghanistan stuff, but Iraq was going to start soon. Yeah. Uh, so we brought a bunch of Marines over and our ship got converted to a prison and that's all declassified now, but there had to be a prison because a war was going to start and there had to be a place to bring people. Just given the way our ship was set up with a big empty space inside, we were able to take all this this fencing and caging more or less and create a prison so that's where I worked and where I was when the war started I'm trying to imagine this petite gorgeous woman <laughs> on this naval ship already with like a lot of males and then <laughs> now your your job is to be on guard with right. in the prison for these Iraqi well, it was funny because there were there were like 395 sailors on my ship uh, and then you know there there weren't many females running around there was me I had my own room because of it that was great but then we would bring on a thousand marines and those were all men <laughs> and then obviously any of the prisoners we brought up we we left the marines in Kuwait so that they could do you know a marine stuff. invasion stuff yeah and then all the prisoners we got were also male but as an officer, I was standing a different watch than sort of like I wasn't marching around guarding the prisoners. I had a different form of work. But when I was standing the guns liaison watch officer role, I would walk through even though I wasn't supposed to. But I just wanted to see. And <laughs> and I would get the craziest looks like disdain from the prisoners. Not yeah. From, not I mean, these are conservative Oh, yes. Um, and they're pissed because they've been right. they've been taken in. They're not happy to begin with. Yeah, that was interesting to me. But what happened was after a watch, I was stuck with the midnight to 4 a.m. watch every night because I was new. I had just checked on board. Right. I was the only junior officer who had who had just checked on board. And I was the only woman that it was just natural that they'd make me stand the mid watch. But one night, I don't, I'm not going to pretend I remember the details exactly. Yeah. I just know I got off watch at four, but at six in the morning, I was found unconscious. And, you know, the details aside, we know that I had no idea what had happened, that the next three months are a complete and utter blur, that I start reporting. And this wasn't evident to me until much later when I got my hands on these old records, I started reporting the well, weird at the time, but in retrospect, hindsight's 2020, unlike my vision was, <laughs> I was having these random, I had never been to medical before, but suddenly I can't catch a Frisbee. And as an athlete, it's like, whoa, I can't catch a Frisbee. Something's wrong. Sounds And Amanda, alarm. how many summits have you done? Oh, of the seven? Yeah. Three. But I mean, like a lot of other See, And you're about things. to go on your 20th marathon? New York 2020 will be my 20th. 
20 so yeah so you not being able to catch a frisbee is like right. pretty big deal like you yeah what's up with it, that you run you're on the cover of runner's world <laughs> you don't you're not just like a hobby right frisbee player you're i mean like i always fancied myself like i can do the roundhouse soccer kicks but I'm... you can actually do this. right right <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't imagining this so yes suddenly uh, not being able to catch a frisbee I also couldn't I would describe it as why can't I read that was sort of my desperate plea and the truth was uh, I would start to get this raging headache so as one of my collateral duties was intelligence officer so I would take all this intelligence coming in and I just cut and paste all this stuff and create a brief and I was horrified I'm confused and then I would just read it off the powerpoint or the paper to the captain and i was hardly able to get through with the the academic or word-based parts of my job which is why i became a rescue swimmer because i didn't have to read anymore yeah and again this is just amanda's nature so amanda you're what i hear you saying is you're talking about how like you have to copy and paste briefs which are actually that's not necessarily an easy task but talked a little bit about adapting I think it's just funny that your version of adapting is becoming a rescue swimmer. You actually posted something on Instagram today about it. There were 55 recruits vying for eight spots Um, as rescue swimmers. I I know it was that close, but we started with 56 people that there's like a weed out week where they beat the shit out of you. This was for rescue swimmer school. And then and you were the only female, right? The whole time. And it's funny because that's not really a job for an officer, but there were two officers and I was an officer. So it was it was just all odd that I was even there. But I had lobbied so hard to go because after this head injury, which I didn't even understand, it was like the big change. What happened to me? And, you know, as we always say with brain injury stuff, hindsight is twenty twenty. In those moments and these choices that I was making and these adaptations, it wasn't, oh, something definitely happened to me and now I have to adapt. It was this sort of underlying bubbling knowledge that things weren't right and that I had to find what I could do, what I wanted to do, where those two things overlapped and just go for it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for me, for sure... I know that when I first started getting sick, then it was I'm trying to check off things that I can do instead. So I remember like I took a graduate program. I actually don't even know how I completed the graduate program, honestly. But it was like, well, I'm not able to get this stuff done. The goals I had set out. This is kind of easier because it's like a checklist. Going to school is like kind of nice because you just do the work and check it off. It was a great way for me to buy time after I got out. I mean, not everyone's buying time version is like becoming a rescue swimmer and freezing cold water. Right. One of the things you said about being a rescue swimmer is that you're doing resuscitation in freezing water with your triage in freezing water. Right. It's so odd. Uh, And as someone who's done a lot of wilderness triage and first responder courses, I (laughs) remembering like the way we would have this metal basket and try to get people into it and then try and splint them and do all of this stuff. I am almost impressed with who I used to be. Now I'm, I'm just boring. 
I'm like, um, oh, anyone can go walk up a mountain, but that was crazy shit. <laughs> Again, Amanda plays down, but also just to set the scene a little bit for you, quote, walking up mountains, you summited um, Mount Kilimanjaro. Is that the one right after you were doing traumatic brain injury rehab? That was my first, I always joke, but it's true. That was my first hike was Mount Kilimanjaro. And I, I took a break from brain injury. Okay, Mount Kilimanjaro, just for those listening, is the tallest peak in Africa. Right. Yeah. So that's not yeah. just a... It is hike. kind of a hike, though. We have to work. We're going to have to have some side conversations <laughs> about how extraordinary <laughs> you are and these feats that you do in spite of illness. And on that note, like one thing that we talked a lot about... It's really hard to be believed and that women already are not believed and sort of being labeled a hypochondriac because, you know, brain stuff is so hard to, yes, to, to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned a lot about being labeled as a hypochondriac. I know I'm paranoid about that myself. Right. Well, it is sort of the swan song of my story. If I had understood what happened to me, even though 2003 was before the the TBI stuff became super sexy, I would not be talking about this because to me, the huge part of my struggle was living with post-concussive syndrome, being told I was mental, given a bunch of meds, and it taking, even though I was being a a good self-advocate, it really took the exclamation point of that second brain injury to break me out of a cycle of not being heard. You know, I thought a lot about just, you know, I have an awesome job. I have much of my athleticism back of just moving forward and and saying, screw it. Hey, that happened. People get hurt. It stinks. But the fact of the matter is, yes, people get hurt, but it is not right when people get hurt and don't get help. Mm, and yeah, looking so into true. some of the data surrounding the number of times women are misdiagnosed as mental or not heard and skip to other doctors and there's so much data to pull and it's hard to pull it accurately and everyone has their own set of things and you can take out certain factors but it remains that women are underserved with unseen illness yeah yeah and that's just not in with mental stuff um, brain stuff i mean we're seeing that right now in the news with women of color and maternity issues absolutely giving birth which is just crazy to me but that underlying narrative of not being believed oh absolutely and I think it's a bigger epidemic than we know I know that I am the most assertive person I have ever met I mean she really is you haven't (laughs) gotten that yet (laughs) and it still took me a really long time to figure it out and not everyone has the quote luxury of falling into a second brain injury to really show that hey these symptoms i've been having the whole time were related and you know able to excavate my old record which had been digitized and by you then had a sense that it was like a brain injury situation not a psychiatric thing uh, i used to wonder if i had some sort of underlying disease because when i did try psychiatric medications they never worked yes adderall would pull me into attention yes clonopin would make me feel relaxed and actually quite awful and i didn't like it at all Benzos are also an epidemic, but the antidepressants didn't make me feel better. Uh, So I knew something else was wrong. So you were diagnosed with depression, anxiety, 
ADHD? Yep. Is that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I was actually also diagnosed with ADHD, but I actually don't have it. It's mm-hmm. a consequence of yeah. the brain injuries, right, right, uh, right. Cognitive functioning that gets compromised. Yeah. Well, and the big other one was PTSD because right. that is a rampant veteran diagnosis, just like a blanket. If you're coming out of the military and you don't even have a specific trauma in mind, it is still incredibly easy if you're struggling in any way to just get labeled PTSD. The thing that bothers me about that in the veteran space, just today's Veterans Day, might as well get it out there, is that PTSD is a treatable condition. So if you got out of the military years ago and you're still taking meds, but you're not seeing a therapist, there is something wrong with that. And veterans deserve better. I would still be taking a medication cocktail and just believing I had all these diagnoses if I hadn't done a lot of work to break out of that cycle. Yeah, something you said that I want to quote you on, you said the nature of unseen or silent injury, this epidemic of people being unserved, don't know what to ask for, that you may have symptoms that are slam drunk for other wrong diagnoses, and that really we must be exploring the underlying cause. There's a reason for everything. Yes, I certainly stand by that. You know, you take post-concussive syndrome, traumatic brain injury, and all the things that come with it, and you do another Venn diagram with a lot of mental issues and PTSD, and there's a ton of overlap there. I understand that sometimes these things get confused, but it takes that extra work to really tease out what is what and examine someone's history, and it's work. So when we have hospitals, and I can speak more to the veteran side, what I've done in the private sector has been very beneficial to me, but is when you have only 15-minute appointments and people getting churned in and out and not really being heard. And the triage, the immediate triage is medication. I get that. But people actually talking through what has happened to them, maybe traumatic events, maybe their actual injuries, and getting to the underlying cause like that's where people are being underserved as I see it. And I talk to thousands of veterans. It's this, okay, I, I have meds. I actually have somebody to like a doctor at the hospital, but it's not having the forum for speaking and finding out what's really going on underneath. Why do you think that is? It's volume, I believe, especially in urban areas where there are a lot of veterans. I also... I might as well say it. If you are working at a VA hospital, you, especially in an urban area, you understand that people are being underserved and you choose to stay. And so I think it's the quality of care you get in the cities. Yeah, I think I found that also when I was in the process of diagnosing, it it was just everybody's exhausted. Mm -hmm. And if you have a complex issue, which... Brain injury is a complex issue. It's so confusing. (laughs) And it's like, I don't know if anyone would believe that speech has been the biggest problem for me in my adult life. And I've done a lot of speaking and I've talked on TV and Mm -hmm. I'm talking to you right now and it probably doesn't sound like anything's wrong. But just last week, my speech therapist and I discussed how much of my bandwidth goes to finding my words and trying to sound normal. And that takes away from everything else. And that's just a mm-hmm. tiny slice of brain injury. I think that's been hard for me. And I actually, well, I was so relieved when we had that conversation about that similar thing because my doctors have been like, word finding is really difficult for you. And in my head, I'm like, oh, shoot, that's part of my cognitive stuff mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I just can run into like a 
hamster wheel of like, oh my God, is it degenerative? What's happening? Right. When I can't find words and then that paranoia just builds up. But something that was so illuminating, you talked about how that actually might potentially be an auditory issue rather than like a cognitive issue. Mm -hmm. And and again, I think that really speaks to your like, just I'm going to get to the bottom of it no matter what. I'm going to keep fighting. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what was that catalyst moment? Because what I also hear you saying, I see this with friends too um, and loved one, is that they just, they're like, man, I'm just tired. Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep asking for questions. I've just been like given the runaround. What was it for you and what keeps you motivated to like keep digging? It took a while for me to to really dig my claws into something that felt aha-ish because even after that second brain injury, I was out of the military by then. Dealing with the VA was very difficult because they downplayed all of my problems because my IQ still tested high. There was still confusion in me sort of wandering a bit and finding NYU Rusk. I bow to them and their concussion center for helping me through. And I did all my surgeries there. Yeah. How many? You've had... I've had 19 surgeries total, but some of them were not related to this, although they're musculoskeletal. And when my balance went to hell and I was still running and doing all this stuff, it did wreck my body. But, you know, stuff with my spine, I mean, the cervical spine is directly related to the second head trauma, the blown retina. I mean, these are and these are classic things. And if you can imagine someone, and I'm not the only one, I might be the only one who can talk about getting the help they needed, but going into the hospital with all of these problems, taking neuropsych tests, which, I mean, you can pass a neuropsych test and still have really big problems. Neuropsych assessments measure cognitive issues. Right. Yeah. Right. And to be told- Just for anyone who's listening. Right. Yeah. But to be told, oh yeah, you score- In 30 tests, you're like 99th percentile, and these six tests, you fall in the lowest 5% of humans. That's obvious brain damage, but your IQ is still high. Bye. What meds do you want? That's not okay. And it took a while for me to figure out, oh, wait, I can empty my bank accounts and figure this out in the private sector. Then I had to go on Medicaid, which for someone in their mid-30s, it was, it was. And someone who's very accomplished. I mean, you're. Right. Oh, I have an Ivy League degree. Ivy League de- degree. <laughs> I know. You're I'm an going officer. on Medicare. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're- but I'm thankful that I found, I'm, I found the way. It's, it, all of it, all of it was me being assertive. And I'm glad that whatever happened, happened because it brought me to where I am today. That's huge and I've talked a little bit about this before on the podcast but I definitely still struggle with that I feel there is some a lot of residual resentment that I'm still working Mm -hmm. through where I'm like oh man if this didn't happen you know I'm 36 and I wish I was here xyz Mm -hmm. and how do you deal with that you have such like a grace um, and perspective when it comes to your experience and where you are right now what does success look like for you now Ooh, that's a tough question. I think I have become incredibly good at the grin and bear it, that everything's fine. And I still do struggle with, I believe that getting through this was a huge success. And I don't really have anything to show for it. After these spine surgeries, I like put sunscreen on your scar. I'm like, no, I want it to show. Like, I want something. Yeah. Um, but it's... The best thing that I can take from going through a really long, 
cruddy situation that I eventually overcame. Don't get me wrong. I still have a lot of issues. But success for me is reaching back and helping people who are stuck in places I was stuck. Because I know that when I was stuck to what whatever you quoted just a few minutes ago, someone could have come up to me with a sign that said, hey, lady, you have brain injury. And until you get it treated and you have your neuroplasticity working for you and you've repaired these neural pathways, you're not going to have a, a full life of intention. And I would have said, please get out of my way. Because when you don't know what you need is not the time when you're looking for the right help. And this is why I urge people who are struggling just to get to therapy because a good therapist can often point you in a direction. I pray not just towards medication, but in a direction to help you find that underlying cause. Because finding that underlying cause for me was what was holding me back for so long. So success for me, and this isn't glamorous work. I don't have, you know, I'm not missing an arm, I'm not running around like shooting guns and doing your typical veteran stuff. I know where the holes are, and that's why I went with the fellowship with High Grounds Veterans Advocacy, High Ground, singular, because they taught us how to actually go and sit in front of congressional offices and say, hey, this law needs to be amended, or this needs to change, or this needs to be enacted, and start change at a level that is going to reach into the system and find the people who are stuck. I mean, I think we're both right now, we're sitting here talking about it. We're in a much better place than we once were. So what I think about as far as success is concerned is helping the people who are stuck in the places that I, I mean, I know these holes. I fell into them. Thankfully, I crawled out, but they can be very lonely, dark places. Yeah, for sure. What would you say to someone who's listening or someone who has a loved one who's sort of struggling with this right now? What would you say to them? I don't even know how to frame that question because I'm like to encourage them. No, I mean like or to mobilize them to keep fighting for their rights. Right. Like how do you even know what your rights are? Exactly. And that's the hardest part is when you don't understand what's going on. And that's the whole that's the whole like surrounding aura when we're talking about cognitive issues or brain injury or post-concussive syndrome is that there's an inability to understand the big picture. I mean, for a long time, it was as though my job was getting to the next day. It, yeah, it, totally. Planning ahead wasn't a thing. And that's why I really turned towards the mental health piece, because if you are impaired in these ways, your mental health is suffering. It doesn't mean you're mentally ill. It means your mental health is being strained. And anyone with strained mental health should seek help. And it was very, I wasn't getting offered help. No one was shoving help in my face. I also was not proactively seeking it out for a really long time. Uh, and I think that would have made a huge difference for me. So my advice would be, if you are struggling in any way, first step is to seek out some mental help. Seek out some therapy. Even people who have great lives get therapy. Therapy is a good thing. Therapy and I is a good hate thing. And <laughs> it's stigmatized. Don't go through the BA unless you want group therapy and medication. So I like the Headstrong Project a lot. I have a therapist and I still see a therapist. I have no stigma attached to that. And it does help me. You spoke about anger. It's helped me really process the anger of losing so much time. And EMDR is my modality of choice. It EMDR just, is eye movement. 
desensitization something or other yeah it's 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 a form of trauma treatment which is psychosomatic which means body-based right right and it actually helps reset your neurological system therefore helping you process things that were very painful or anger inducing as more logical like hey this happened to me and it really stinks but at least i can help other people and be thankful that i made it through and you know, I'm I'm less than forty right now. I still have a lot of life in me. You have a lot of life in you. <laughs> I hate when people are like, "Oh my gosh, I'm this age." And I always think of love him or hate him, Gary V. and right. his like messaging and almost all of his podcasts is we are so young. Yeah, we are so young. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I definitely have struggled with that, with the resentment that you're talking about, with the anger of, "Oh, I wish I was this place." But I think as I get older, I'm trying to hold both, and I wonder. Do you ever struggle with this where I meet people who I'm like, oh, man, like I'm so lucky compared to them. Their injuries, mm-hmm. something that they're living with is way more difficult than I am. And then I'm like, I shouldn't feel bad about this. Like, right. Because it's like, yeah, people look at me and they're like, oh, you look fine. And I'm like, right. maybe I am fine. Then I start yeah. questioning like if something It goes both on. ways. And it's it's tough for me in being a veteran to see a lot of this like. And everyone who served deserves some credit and my thanks. But, you know, how many times have I wished I had got my leg blown off or that I'd just been shot or that I'd been in a wreck or a crash or that I'd driven over an IED because I would have been given treatment right away? Would I trade my life of having lived it without a limb or something to that effect Versus what I went through, which was like very mentally taxing and exhausting and it led to a lot of heartbreak. And, you know, it's it's does no good for me to really ruminate on that much. And I try to look forward. But, you know, the short answer is shoot my leg, take my leg and then put me back, like give me some treatment and make it a year long ordeal. But this was a decade and a half of struggle for me. So what I hear you saying is really about the invisible becoming visible. Right, right. I mean, and it's there's no there's no part of me where you see what happened. You know, see all the screws and little plates inside. I Oh yeah, because you do actually have a lot of <laughs> yeah. stuff in there. I have a couple have a of, lot of equipment. body parts. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I really light up on the X-ray machine. Yeah, but you know, I wouldn't change it because now I have the knowledge to help a lot of other people. And medical records being digitized now, there are ways. So I had this loss of consciousness in 2003. I didn't even know about it. The documents were shoddy, handwritten. But they were scanned in eventually, and a really clever person at the VA hospital was able to go through some sort of wall and look at these old records. And we were like, oh, my gosh, we have all this. This is like slam dunk the information we needed a really long time ago. But now that these things are digitized to go to Congress and say, hey, there needs to be some sort of a law or an amendment to an existing law that screens for loss of consciousness and double checks that this person has had a TBI screen. Because loss of consciousness almost always means some sort of concussion or, you know, some people have concussion and it's just a, a week or two thing. 
there are people who are prone to post-concussive syndrome. So, and that can really escalate. So you can have like a predisposition. Absolutely. Right. Okay. And I think that's so valuable that you say that because it also makes me think about something that we talked about, which is people think that like, oh, you're a veteran, traumatic brain injury makes sense that that could be part of your stuff that happens. But you had mentioned this and I thought that was so illuminating, which is we have to also be thinking about, for example, people who are in domestic violence situations yes. and their propensity towards traumatic brain injuries. And when people say like, oh, I just fell and hit my head, I'm in a traumatic brain injury support group. And there are so many people in there who have just slipped on the shower and now their lives are completely changed. So there's mm-hmm. almost like a stigma or I don't know if it's a stigma, but it's like a dismissive thing right. where it's like, oh, it's not that bad. Right. Like, everyone falls or. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think about that a lot. And I don't want to just make my advocacy about veterans or just about women. It's about not getting help. And when I think about if I had been knocked unconscious and a bunch of people saw it, I would have been escorted to medical. I would have gotten help right away. I know this. When a domestic violence victim gets hit or, you know, pushed and smashes their head, whatever it may be, the very person who could potentially bring them to the hospital isn't. I mean, that's the nature of this horrible situation. And that person will later cry for help, not only because they're in a bad situation, but because they're now having all these issues. And that will be misconstrued as mental illness. And I see that epidemic as even more... uh, horrifying and under the radar as you know veterans with traumatic brain injury but I do think I live in Harlem and I've seen I think I might have mentioned this when we talked before I've seen kids fighting after school I cringe when I see anyone's head getting hit and I just want to run in and say no you have to go to the hospital now this could lead to a lot down the road or friends whose kids play friends of course because I don't have any kids yet (laughs) play soccer and they headbutt balls and I get really paranoid about this stuff but it's all for good reason and I do think you know when you have issues that arise from head injury of any kind and they go unchecked and untreated and misunderstood that can lead to mental issues Right. So it's like the unaddressed stuff does become, I know that it's true for my case. And I see this a lot with other people too. It's like, had I not been diagnosed, shout out to my doctor, Dr. Derek Chong, who I adore, (laughs) my symptoms could have led to even worse long-term potential, like early onset dementia, early onset Alzheimer's, had I not gotten lucky enough to be diagnosed now. When you think about authenticity in this place in your life, having had all this stuff happen, What comes to mind? That's an interesting question because I do, I know I project and it's not on purpose. Just thank goodness this is me for better or worse, hopefulness and energy. And I travel a lot and I do epic sporting adventures. But authentically speaking, this would not be my life if I hadn't fought for it. And so always honoring the fact that I had to fight for it and being grateful that I made it through but reaching back for those other people. But being authentic is never forgetting where I came from. And where I came from was a really long struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of a better way to say that. I mean, you just imbue 
that you will get to the bottom of why. Like anytime I think when I was thinking about this interview, I kept wanting to ask you is just that play on like if you were if I was a kid and you were an adult, just like it. But yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? <laughs> like if we had time for that, I would totally, I'm like I just want to sit in a corner and be like, yeah, but tell me why should I do this <laughs> when getting treatment sucks and when it's like really hard to be told, well, maybe you're just making this up or yeah, actually, maybe you do have depression when actually all this other stuff is going on. I know you're doing a lot of advocacy work right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that or maybe what we can be doing in our own city and in our own communities? The way that somebody out there could help with this specifically is to urge anyone who's struggling to get some help. And it's not as simple as, you know, I I learned that I had multiple traumatic brain injury crickets. It wasn't no, but then to go and get the treatment. And then when something didn't feel right to speak up and say, I still don't feel right. Every single person has a body that wants to heal. And the amount of people, and it breaks my heart, no, no tears, but, but the amount of people that resign themselves to stop asking questions and, and take medication and just sort of accept uh, the labels as their fate is shocking to me. And I speak to a lot of people who I sense are actually insulted that I'm urging them to push for more, to ask more of their providers, but it's our right. And it's everybody's right to feel healthy, to feel 100%. And I know how I grew up and I know who I was when I walked down the pier and got on that ship to go on my first deployment. And I will never forget what it felt like to think clearly and to be a bomb-ass athlete. And I don't think clearly, and I'm not a bomb-ass athlete. And until I feel that I've done everything I can to fulfill those, I don't make it my 24-7 life's work. I understand I do have some limitations and probably always will. But taking care of myself is a huge part of being able to take care of other people. So the number of people I talk to that aren't taking care of themselves is shocking to me. And I try to just inspire other people to take their life back. I couldn't think of a better way to say all of that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and just your champion spirit. I love what you're saying about it's not just all driving and endurance and like overcoming but it's also in just the little day-to-day like getting up and being able to brush your teeth and then the next day maybe winning that marathon but holding both and really honoring both and I think there's so much value in that and I need to remember that because I can definitely get into that type a like how come I'm not accomplishing stuff but yeah you're right this morning I got dressed I was still a little late because I was I forgot where my keys were and then like (laughs) I mean but yeah just really honoring and celebrating ourselves that we are where we are today thank you so much for coming in and joining us well thank you for having me and thank you for doing what you do Oh my gosh, no, thank you. (laughs) Thank you more. (laughs) I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.